0: Today's episode is brought to you by Courtney Mom's The Year of the Horses, which Danny Shapiro calls searing, lucid, tender, and wise. The memoir tells the story of Mom's return to horseback riding after many years away, charting how she finds her way back to herself, not only as a rider, but as a mother, wife, daughter, rider, and woman alternating timelines and braided with historical portraits of women and horses alongside history's attempts to tame both parties. The Year of the Horses is an inspiring love letter to the power of animals and humans to heal the mind and the heart, says Lisa Tadeo. Gorgeously written, wry but loving, heartbreaking, and most of all roving, The Year of the Horses is a memoir of power and beauty and pain that moves across the world like the beautiful horses that carry it. The Year of the Horses is out now from Tin House. Before we begin today's conversation with poet Ada Limon, I wanted to mention the animals in this conversation. The conversation itself is about, among many other things, how to represent animals in one's work, but more importantly, how to be in engagement with animals and with the non-human world at large in our lives, and how to carry that engagement into our work, as well as about writing at a time of ecological precarity and human dominion over the earth. Longtime listeners know that I have brought up my cat Ewok in these intros before, multiple times, especially if she made a cameo in some fashion during the interview itself. And if you listen to a lot of conversations with Ada Limon, it isn't uncommon to hear her dog snoring beside her as part of those conversations. You may have noticed that I haven't brought up Ewok in a while, and that is because she died last summer during Portland's heat dome where the temperatures reached a previously unfathomable 118 degrees. After nine months of mourning, and with her purple heart-shaped name tag now dangling from the boom arm of my microphone, and a little tuft of her fur here on the desktop with me, we adopted another cat, not a kitten, but a six-year-old of mysterious origins, a cat who needed some immediate medical attention. And because we were both fully formed personalities on either side of the species equation, the first month was largely figuring each other out. But this has ultimately resulted in a hard one, but very real bond, an obvious one both ways. Her name is Soleil, and I bring her up because while Ada's dog, who starts barking while we're talking, um, and Ada steps away to bring the dog to another room, all of which is cut from the final audio, so you would never know, there's a point in the interview where Soleil goes kind of bonkers. It's from the hallway, from the other side of the door, so it is faint, and because it is faint, it might even be mistaken for a clock alarm going off or something else but I make the counterintuitive decision to then invite Soleil into the recording studio to see if she'll chill out. You won't hear me do that, but at some point Ada asks how she's doing and I point her out and I left that part of the conversation in the final cut. It's fitting because one of the questions we ask is about how to be with other creatures where they have the space to live on their own terms and how to represent that in language on the page. And Soleil definitely set the terms. But in the end, I think she enjoyed the conversation as much as Ada and I did, and as much as hopefully you will too. This conversation isn't only about animals and nature and poetry. One of the many other things we discuss is the Argentinian poet Alejandra Pizarnik, an important poet for Ada, and one who figures in this latest collection of hers in multiple ways. For the bonus audio, Ada contributes a reading of multiple poems by Alejandra Pizarnik. This joins bonus audio from many iconic poets, Rosemary Waldrop, Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, Nikki Finney, Douglas Kearney, Natalie Diaz, Arthur Z, and many others. The bonus audio is only one of many potential benefits of becoming a supporter of the show and joining the Between the Covers community. You can find out more about all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's animal-inflected conversation with Ada Limon.
1: These stories are about the id of the wildness in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if
2: somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
0: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story.
3: I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet in
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and fellow podcaster Ada Limon. Limon studied theater at the Drama School of the University of Washington in Seattle with a minor in dance, and then pursued an MFA at NYU, studying poetry with Sharon Olds, Phil Levine, Marie Howe, Mark Doty, and others. She lived in New York for 12 years, working at various magazines, including GQ, and as the creative director of Travel and Leisure. And during this time, her first book of poetry, Lucky Wreck, which was also the name of her band, was picked by Jean Valentine as winner of the Autumn House Poetry Prize. And her second book, This Big Fake World, went on to win the 2006 Pearl Poetry Prize. Her three books since then, and the fourth which we are talking about today, have all come out with Milkweed Editions. Her 2010 collection, Sharks in the River, her 2015 National Book Award finalist, Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award finalist, and National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, Bright Dead Things, and her 2018 Penn Jean Stein Book Award finalist, The Carrying, which went on to win the National Book Critics Circle Award in poetry that year and was named a Best Book of the Year by nearly everybody. Limon was also a judge for the National Book Award in Poetry in 2013, the year Mary Shebist took home the trophy. For a long time now, she's been a resident of Lexington, Kentucky, and teaches in the Queen's University of Charlotte Low Residency MFA program. Her writing has appeared everywhere from Pleiades to The New Yorker. She's received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, and the Kentucky Foundation for Women, She's also the host, taking over for U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith, of one of poetry's most high-profile podcasts, The Slowdown, where every weekday Ada chooses a poem by a different poet and creates a moment of reflection through an engagement with it. Ada's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book of poetry from Milkweed called The Herding Kind. Publishers Weekly and its starred review calls The Herding Kind tender and arresting, an ode to the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth that characterizes the natural world. Limon's crystalline language is a feast for the senses, bringing monumental significance to the minuscule and revealing life in every blade of grass. Serena, for Books Are Magics, Most Anticipated Books for Spring, says, In this tender and intimate new collection, Limon asks what it means to be the hurting kind, to be both perceptive and permeable to the delicate strings that connect us to each other and to the world around us. All I can say is Ada Limon never misses. Each poem is a stone in the poet's hand being turned over and over to reveal its quartz qualities, its secret radiances, its prismatic reflections lucid as ever. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ada Limon.
2: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you for that beautiful introduction.
0: Well, I I wanted to get a sense of what makes your latest book distinct from the others by looking at what you've said about past books that made those books departures or tangible evolutions from what came before them. For instance. You have this great post on your blog called On Art and Anxiety that you wrote in 2015 on the eve of your book, Bright Dead Things, coming out. And in it you say, these are your most personal poems to date and also the most open, the book where you don't hide. You say Mm -hmm. that the I in these poems is actually you, that you kept asking yourself what you were scared to write and writing it. And then you ended up, because of that, with a book of poems about such true and personal things that they were things that you might not even have said to a good friend mm-hmm. and and you say it was your first book that was containing real love poems and the first book you didn't write for poets but for yourself and your friends and your family and with the book that followed it the carrying the one before the one we're going to talk about you could say you hid even less that you revealed more of the you within the i in that you explore quite deeply, among many other things, infertility, and, and what it meant that your desire to and your attempts to have a child didn't manifest. You talked about this fifth book as an arrival of sorts to a mode that felt completely you, very close to how you see the world, that it doesn't feel performative, but simply authentically who you are. And thinking of these books and your sense of having, through the process of writing five books, found your way toward a, maybe a poetics of authenticity, a poetics like a second skin, tell us about the hurting kind, how it either extends this, this trajectory or how it departs from this trajectory and and what gives it, gives it its own particular identity in your mind.
2: What a beautiful question. Um, And it's making me think so much of what it is that we do every time we make a book and how we shift from, you know, the idea of making one poem, one poem, one poem, one poem, and then suddenly a book starts to manifest and you start to realize, oh, something's coming together. Um, and so I think it's a great question because I was curious too, like, what is this a continuation? Um, of course, in some ways it is because it's, it's me, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and there is no, there's no question about that, that it's me. And um, I feel like with this book in particular, one of the things that I was really interested in was what it was to de-center the self in some ways. Mm. And I think with both Bright Dead Things and The Carrying, there was an autobiographical element. And there is certainly in this, But I think I was curious as to what would happen if I thought of the poems more as exploration of the world and witnessing the world and me being a part of that and interconnected in the world, as opposed to me being the great I, E-Y-E, and I, (laughs) Mm. Um, and maybe in some ways pulling back from that and not only being witnessed, but letting myself be witnessed, and maybe getting a little smaller mm. in these poems. Um, and in doing so, honoring the ancestors, the friends, the animals, the people around me. So I think in some ways, it's definitely still a continuation of the books. And um, it's also a departure in the sense that I don't want to say it's a pulling away from the world. It's a, um, it's a writing from a different place in the world. And instead of feeling separate in any way, it's writing from a place of feeling a part of everything. Um, and I do think that's new only because I think it's a new thing that's happened to me.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of new things that have happened to you, another way you were framing the two books before this one as, was as two books that you couldn't imagine having written if you'd still been living in New York, working full-time in a different field, and that having moved to Kentucky, not working in the magazine industry, not taking a full-time teaching position, but having more time and space to really be a writer is the atmosphere that allowed those two books to come into being as they did. And in light of that, I wanted to hear about how, if at all, the pandemic or sheltering at home or quarantine, um, how it, it played a role in regards to um, changing your poetry or shaping this collection. For instance, I was wondering, as I read it, if the Backyard Garden, which is where some of the dramas get foregrounded in this book, if perhaps that was a result um, of being at home more, of focusing more on us finding the world within a smaller space, I guess, um, or, but also in, in a larger way, like um, did the pandemic at all um, find a way to influence your, the forms of your poems or, or, um, or the ways that you wrote them?
2: I mean, I think like most people, there was no way around it, right? There was no way to not have it affect you. Um, I was lucky in that I wasn't an essential worker um, or, you know, someone who needed to work every day and be exposed to the virus. I was able to stay home. Um, And in that staying home, I do think there was... A deepening of a silence, um, a deepening of what it was to reframe being alone. And I think in some ways it made me wonder if I even believed in aloneness mm-hmm. or if I even believed in loneliness. Because I think the more I sat with it, the more I recognized. That these trees and these birds, and you know, they, they're part of my community, my house plants, yeah. my cat, my dog. Um, my husband had to travel a lot for work, so um, he was gone. So it was pretty much me alone in the house. Um, and I think there was a moment in which the garden became more alive, right? The bird feeder became more essential to my well being and my daily practice. Um, my friends, (laughs) Uh, and I also think on that same level, I really, if I didn't believe in loneliness or aloneness, I did believe in missing, missing certain people and missing certain things and missing certain pleasures. Um, And I think in some ways the book became an invitation to explore what that missing was and realizing that missing was a way of loving. Mm. And so making poems that became offerings and letters and reaching out. And so I could send my father a poem and say, I miss you. I wrote this poem for you today. Or I could send my stepfather a poem and say, I miss you. I wrote this for you. Um, And they became like that. They became letters. They became, you know, uh. A way of reaching out, a way of connecting that was really authentic and wasn't again thinking necessarily about who was going to read it except for the person who it literally was written for. Right. Um and so I think there was that a, a reimagining of what it was to be in the world as a being and whether or not I was lonely or if I was just separated. Um And if I could sort of bridge that distance with poetry um, and the same way was true with that witnessing of animal and plant life was, was there a way of exploring that separation, the distance between human and plant and animal and understanding that it's never something I'll figure out, understanding that it's never something I'll sort of being like, Oh, and now I know why we are separate. but also exploring that uh, connection. And I don't know if I would have had that time and space and breath and um, urgency if it wasn't for the pandemic. Because I think I was urgently looking for connection um, as a way of survival, as a way of overcoming anxiety. as a way of not feeling like, okay, let's just lie on the ground and give up, <laughs> you know? And so I think it was, um, I don't want to say desperate, <laughs> but I, I, I think that connection was not just like, oh, I'm going to spend the day looking at the feeder. It was like, I've, I've got to do something. What do I do? Um, and that was part of it.
0: S- some of what you said reminds me a little bit of when you were talking about the 15th anniversary reissue of your debut, which you described as being written under the atmosphere of post 9-11 New York and how you were simultaneously feeling this connection with your fellow New Yorkers and a sense of, of feeling very isolated at the same time, I, uh, which makes me wonder if maybe this question, not in the same way with the pandemic, but if this question of the self and the collective and, bridging that gap or, or using missing as a form of love. And then by, as a result, a form of connection is that is, if that might be a um, through line from, from then yeah. until now.
2: I think that's a, a very true observation. Cause I do think poetry is the way that I connect and I know it's not for everyone, like for, you know, sometimes it's a way of exploring, something unknown or you know unraveling some sound or some lyrical exploration but for me i think it at at its whole at its core for me is 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 a way of connecting and sometimes it's it is a way of just connecting with myself right like oh right i am a human being i am breathing i am living in the world and and that that's enough Um, and I think that was important too, but yeah, I think that, I think that is very true that I write poetry that matters to me on a, (laughs) on a level in which I mean, it really like it, it, it does something for me. Um, and I don't always know if it will do anything for anyone else, (laughs) but I know that I will feel better, um. Or more whole, because mm-hmm. sometimes you know it's a harder poem, and you don't really feel better, but you feel maybe more whole afterwards. Um, and that that's really important to me. It's, it's important to my process of art making. I think in general, is that it it means something to me, and that it's not always um, really about the audience, which which is a hard thing to say because, of course, I I want to reach people. Um, but i think when i'm writing just individual poems that's not really a part of it yet you know oftentimes the audience i'm i'm reaching is like my mom or yeah. you know a few friends or um just writing on a human level one one person to another
0: well the book takes us through um the four seasons opening with spring and i was hoping to begin as as a beginning to explore your poetics further if we could hear the opening garden set poem, give me this, and then um, the poem "A Good Story,"
2: I would be honored to read those poems. And we're just we're just getting to spring in Kentucky, so I'm I'm excited to see if my groundhog comes back. <laughs> I bet he, I bet she will. I bet she will too. Give me this. I thought it was the neighbor's cat, back to clean the clock of the fledgling robins low in their nest, stuck in the dense hedge by the house. But what came was much stranger, a liquidity moving, all muscle and bristle, a groundhog slippery and wattle thieving my tomatoes, still green in the morning shade. I watched her munch, and stand on her haunches, taking such pleasure in the watery bites. Why am I not allowed delight? A stranger writes to request my thoughts on suffering. Barbed wire pulled out of the mouth, as if demanding that I kneel to the trap of coiled spikes used in warfare and fencing. Instead, I watch the groundhog more closely, And a sound escapes me, a small spasm of joy I did not imagine when I woke. She is a funny creature and earnest, and she is doing what she can to survive. And then a good story is a poem I wrote for my stepfather. A good story. Some days, dishes piled in the sink, books littering the coffee table, are harder than others. Today, my head is packed with cockroaches, dizziness, and everywhere it hurts, venom in the jaw, behind the eyes, between the blades. Still, the dog is snoring on my right, the cat on my left. Outside, all those red buds are just getting good. I tell a friend, The body is so body, and she nods. I used to like the darkest stories, the bleak snippets someone would toss out about how bad it could get. My stepfather told me a story about when he lived on the streets as a kid, how he'd, some nights, sleep under the grill at a fast food restaurant until both he and his buddy got fired. I used to like that story for some reason. Something in me that believed in overcoming. But right now, all I want is a story about human kindness. The way once, when I couldn't stop crying because I was 15 and heartbroken, he came in and made me eat a small pizza he'd cut up into tiny bites until the tears stopped. Maybe I was just hungry, I said. And he nodded. Holding out the last
0: piece. i listening to Ada Limon read from her latest poetry collection, The Hurting Kind. So so I want to make what will seem like a detour from tomato thieving groundhogs and kindness through pizza to Alejandra Pizarnik. But I, I promise that I actually have a unified theory of groundhogs, pizza, and Pizarnik. I'm um, so
2: excited. For that. <laughs>
0: First, I want to ask you about her, though. She's one of the poets you've done an episode around on, on the Slowdown podcast. And when you were on the 92nd Avenue Wise read-by poetry podcasts where guests are asked to choose a poet and then read poems by them, you chose Pizarnik. Uh, and you talked about how helpful reading her was during the pandemic. And, and then you read poems from Extracting the Stone of Madness. But here also in your new collection, there is a poem in it called I Have Wanted Clarity in Light of My Lack of Light. And that title, the title of the poem is in quotes. And it turns out to be a line from Pizarnik, from a poem called Fragments for Subduing Silence. And the poem that follows is written after her. Um, and perhaps most notably, your book opens with an epigraph from her all as well. So, so talk to us about Alejandra Pizarnik. What is it about this Argentinian Jewish poet that you are compelled by and want to engage with both by sharing her work and having her work shape yours and, and even open the collection with her words?
2: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so wonderful to honor a poet. Um, Alejandra Pizarnik is um, really a fascinating character to me and a fascinating poet. But one of the things that I find really true in her work is that she's as interested in the music of language as she is in the silence. And I'm so intrigued by the idea of what it is to really shape poems around silence and what that means. And I think that there are so many times where when we talk about poetry, we only talk about the language and the images and, um, I've been a poet that has often said that, you know, one of the things I love about poetry is that there's breath built right into it. And, you know, I've said that for years, but I hadn't really talked about what how silence begins to shape um, the poem itself. And she believes in that. I also think that in her work, you notice a sort of pushing against a wisdom and pushing against a figuring things out. Right. And in doing that, I think she becomes such a witness to the world in a way that feels not like an authority, but like part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think her work meant something to me as I was putting this book together, but also just as reading it um, during the pandemic is that it made so much room for silence. And it also made room for mystery.
0: Well, the reason why I bring her up is because the epigraph from the poem "Pido el Silencio, or I Ask for Silence, translated by Yvette Siegert, um, because when I think of the groundhog in your garden who's destroying your tomatoes, which is the opening image of the collection, you aren't focusing on what you've patiently grown and nurtured and which is now being stolen before they are ripe. And similarly, and more explicitly in a good story, you have lines which many of your poems do that kind of invite us to see them as a a facet of your personal Ars Poetica. Lines like, I used to like the darkest stories. Now now all I want is a story about human kindness. Mm. In the first poem, you take joy in the joy of another after eating your food even at your own expense. And the second, you take joy from being fed by another when you were emotionally unmoored. Um, And the, the Pizarnik lines in the epigraph go, though it's late, though it's night, and you are not able, sing as if nothing were wrong. Nothing is wrong. This poem almost feels like it imbues words with magic, like it's a spell to me, though it's late, though it's late. And though you are not able sing as if nothing were wrong. And then that declarative, that mysterious declarative, nothing is wrong. And I recognize that gesture throughout your work, not just in this collection of no matter what dark place you are in or dark place you go to in the poems, this word magic move, I would call it, um, sing as if nothing were wrong, nothing is wrong. And I wondered if that felt right to you, that part of your poetics, um, that regardless of whether you're writing about a failed dream, a death, a chronic illness, a mercy killing of an animal, uh, that you say this too, this horrible thing too, almost like a yes to it, this unwanted thing. And somehow in doing that, something happens like that last line of the epigraph.
2: Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, And thank you for deeply reading that and pointing that out to me. Um, You're such a great reader. I mean, that's why I love this podcast. Uh, I feel like there's. uh, I'm so interested in what it is to live in balance with those things, because that is what it is to live. And I'm also interested in what it is sometimes for artists to only go towards the suffering. And I think there was a time I thought that's what I should do, that that's what was required of me, was to look only towards the trauma, the suffering, the hard parts. Um, and that's also what I saw being valued, you know, and what I saw being praised. And so I thought, you know, that's what that's what poets should do that's our job is to is to go into the darkness, go down into the bottom of the well. But I think as I've aged there's a certain I just don't believe it anymore. <laughs> I don't believe it anymore and I don't believe it's what we should do as human beings mm. you know because even life has always been hard, you know it's particularly hard now, especially if you take to consideration the, climate crisis. We are at a different place than we've ever been, but I feel like there's something in this life, right. That is always asking us to recommit to it. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that, like ongoingness. I'm also interested in what life looks like without me in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, you know, something were to happen to me in that sort of sense of what continues and it's like, oh, the tree would go on and the birds would go on. And I don't know, there's a beauty in that. And I feel like we spend so much of our life looking for connection and searching for a community and wanting to feel aligned with something. Um, and I just wonder if maybe what's more true is that we are already in community and we are already connected and the distance between us is made up of earth and we're part of that earth. Yeah. And, um, that might sound a little out there. It doesn't I think at all. It's, oh, thank you. But I feel like there is that to me is that part of that is that the thing as if nothing is wrong, nothing is wrong you know, I think there is that moment in which like this, this is it. And, um, if I live my life only for tomorrow, I will be deeply unhappy. And if I live my life only for yesterday, I will be deeply unhappy. Um, and so what is it to be in this moment? Um, and then in order to be in this moment fully, I need to know that it's not easy. But that also there's something good. And I also don't want to feel guilt. You know, we use that phrase guilty pleasures and we think about the guilt of I'm having some joy, even though we are watching a real human terror when we think about what's happening in Ukraine, pandemic, climate crisis, all of these things. You can't even line them up. You can't even say them all out loud. But I also know that there's, you know, a bird trying to live its life. And I also know that there's some beauty and someone feeding someone and someone helping someone, someone being at someone's bedside as they pass or being at their bedside as they give birth. And I I think there's there's something that we need to pay attention there. Uh, And I don't know if I can name it, but I know it feels like it's not the easy answer, right? It's not like, oh, this is the this is the summing up, right? I think I have that line in one of my poems, like, you know, you can't sum it up. Mm-hmm. And that feels true to me in the sense that I'm always asking, like, how do we live? And what has been making the most sense to me in terms of how we live is we have to live in this moment and we have to live in deep appreciation for all the things, And that's not to say any of it's easy, you know, and it's not, it's also not to say that suffering isn't a part of all of this, but there's also another part too. Right. And I, I don't want to lose sight of that. And I feel like too often artists are asked to lose sight of that. Artists are asked to be the person living in the well. Um, And I don't think that's fair. (laughs) I think we get the light too. And, um, and I, you know, I feel like I, part of this book is reclaiming both sides and I, I want to, I want the
0: light too. Well, I don't know if this, where this connects with um, your trajectory and whether this is still reflects where you are at now, but um, Matthew Zapruder has described you as a high level Duende enabler. <laughs> and and you have a lecture called on Duende and the latter, mystery mm-hmm. and hope and poetry, where you say Lorca defined Duende as having four distinct elements, irrationality, earthiness, a close awareness of death, and the diabolical. And your craft lecture is about how to balance these elements. And and when I hear you speaking now, um, not about this, but just more generally, um, your craft lecture was about how to balance the dark and the light within the poem, which it feels to me like perhaps you're saying that um, in a different way but yeah. can can you talk to us a little bit about um balancing the dark and the light in the in a yeah. poem yeah
2: it's funny cuz we talk about it like what is it to write the craft of poems right the balancing the, the dark and light in a poem itself um but really it's the work of a life it's not just the work of the art right. <laughs> it's it's really just for me like how can i do it as a living human being and get up in the morning and, you know, have struggles and have pain and then still be like, yeah, okay, like, but let's do this. And I think that that, um, that that needs to be witnessed in poetry. So I feel like one of the things that I, I think I push against, um, is the commodification of pain and trauma in poetry. And that's not to say that I don't think it should be there. Cause I think there's a lot of really important, really healing, um, really powerful, uh, and really change inducing poems that have come out of exploring trauma um and pain not just for the readers but for the writers themselves so i don't want to say that that's not incredibly important because it is but i really feel that if we're going to embrace our full humanity as artists we need to embrace the sort of the funny parts the humor the idea of um ongoingness, you know, that we still do this. And that's always been, it's always amazed me that we do it. Um, I am someone who finds everything weird. Someone who finds um, just our ability to keep going and, and the absurdity. I mean, thinking about this, how we've all been living through this pandemic and, you know, all of us with different um, circumstances, of course, and those of us who could, stay inside. And those of us who were working every single day. And those of us that were on the front lines, all of these things, but there was this sort of absurdity of, okay, I guess, you know, I'm going to, you know, a friend taking a COVID test and a pregnancy test, you know, like these like wonderful, like what's going on, you know, a friend doing these things of, you know, trying to figure out how we can best support one another. And, and and then also you know finding out someone someone was sick and then also planting the garden and all of these things were happening at once and i think it's also a level when i think about balancing the dark and the light i think it's also a level in which it's that recognition of so much is happening all the time <laughs> that it's all happening at once and it's never i'm never walking around with like one feeling very rarely right is there just one feeling moving in my body (laughs) it's usually a lot of different things and a lot of different thoughts and and i i think my poetry and my art and um my life is kind of is curious about that is what is that complexity um and so it's not just about balance right and it's not just about the two forces of light and dark but it's also about what is it to embrace that sense of wholeness and what is it to find that sense of wholeness in the work Um, and in life and 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 leaning into that because I think as I've aged as an artist and as a person um, I'm just more and more suspicious of things that make it easy or sort of sum it up or just say this is sort of the thing or I figured this out right I mean I think there was a moment when I was in my twenties and and even thirties where I was like, yeah, I figured this out. Like, this is, this is how life works, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know anything now. And I, and I mean, I don't know, there's, there's something in that, that I think that surrender to that, that surrender to the chaos of life, the surrender to like, well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes. Um, used to really pain me. Um, and distress me. And it felt like unfair. It felt like that wasn't how life should be. And now I think I'm not only is it how life is, it's also what I want more and more to work towards surrendering to as I continue.
0: It just makes me think. It makes me think about like, I'm sure I know more than I did several decades ago, but I would define aging. I mean, my experience of aging day to day As much as I feel like I know more what I'm interested or not interested in, it does feel like a process of unknowing Mm -hmm. for me in a good good way. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I love that mystery of like, oh, like this is, I used to know so many things for certain, you know, and now I'm suspicious of anything. Even if I think, oh, I know this, I immediately question, do I, do I really know that? I don't know. And I think giving into that is actually has been a real delight for me. Because um, I think, honestly, when I first started out as a poet, um, you know, in my young 20s, living in New York, studying with people like Phil Levine and Sharon Olds and Galway Cannell, Agasha Hadali, they were wise to me and they were wise and their poems were wise. But it wasn't that that wasn't that they they were necessarily doing that it was that their poems had some kind of wisdom within them. And I think, you know, as a, as a kid looking up to that, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a poem and I'm going to try to be wise. Right. <laughs> it's was like, what do you do with that? <laughs> of course it's hilarious. Now to me, it's like, oh, trying to have some epiphany, trying to have some kind of like, and then I realized this moment. And of course, comparing myself to a poem Phil Levine wrote at 70, you know, right? <laughs> like, huh, how come I can't do that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, I want to, I want to spend an extra moment with something you said at the very beginning of your last answer, which was to learn how to balance dark and light within a poem is really a life practice. And it's about doing that in your life, a practicing how to do that in your life day to day, moment to moment, because in your, in your Duende class description, you not only talk about balancing dark and light, but you also say you talk about balancing it and then ending the poem by conveying a sense of hope to the reader, which perhaps connects us to the Pizarnik epigraph ending too. You rarely leave the reader in a place of helplessness, anger, bitterness, or fear, even if you might travel through those things in a poem. Mm -hmm. Um, You've talked about how you think of poetry as having a healing power mm-hmm. and it, and i know you call yourself an atheist and it, and you have this wonderful poem in an earlier collection what it looks like to us and the words we use which is about this as all and it's also about naming where you say that you say to a friend that you believe in the connection we have that we all have with nature and to each other And your friend calls this God, and you refuse to call it God, even though you're both recognizing the same phenomenon. And the reason why I bring this up is because this gesture of yours, which I do think runs through much of your poetry, one that I I have trouble finding words for, but let's say a, a repeated affirmative yes, it has the feel to me of a spiritual practice the way certain practices are ritualized and repeated. For instance, Rachel Zucker, the host of Commonplace, she did a roll call of past guests of the show during the pandemic, brief check-ins. And in yours, you talked about meta-loving kindness meditation, a daily practice of yours that begins with an offering to yourself, then an offering to a difficult person, and then an offering to all beings everywhere, one that you described as like a prayer uh, and a sending out of something positive into the world when you yourself might be feeling the opposite, helpless, um, confused, um, maybe even despairing, and it's something you practice every day. And I guess I wondered if you feel like poetry is this for you in some way because when I read the poems, I don't want to suggest that they're the same, They go to very different places, but there is a sense of a ritual. To me, they feel like the gesture of them feels like a ritual to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it does make sense. All writing to me, from like the act of writing, feels like a way of connecting, right? I said that before, like it feels like a way of connecting. In loving kindness meditation, which I first learned from Sharon Salzberg, in New York city at the dip house, um, got in 2006, maybe 2005. I remember thinking that it seemed so obvious, like, okay, first, like, you know, you're just kind to yourself and then you're kind to a friend and then you're kind to a group of loved ones. And then you, you, you work on the enemy, which is supposed to be the hardest. And then, and then it's to all beings everywhere. And I was, um, I was really doing it on a regular basis and I was feeling the shift to me and I kept sort of resisting it because I was like, Oh, I'm just going to try this. You know, I'm going to try this. I actually um, felt like, I don't know. I I was willing to try anything to feel better um, as anyone who's in a desperate place with either their physical or mental health will know. And um, I suddenly recognized how hard it was to offer the love to yourself. Mm. Like that seemed like it should be the easiest, right? Yeah. Like that seemed like, yeah, like I I would like to feel good. Like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, you know, all of these things like, yeah. But then there was this strange part of you that would resist it. Like, no, send it to someone who needs it or no, you know, like this, you know, I was fascinated what was happening in the mind in this practice, so i do feel like there's a part of writing you know n- now and i think maybe maybe for most of my life i actually don't know um that has always been a way of praising and even if it's the suffering thing it is the shining a little light on that suffering thing and that hard thing that thing that maybe we don't talk about You know, the sick friend, the sick parent, the sick self. What is it to talk about that? And in talking to it, isn't there a way of bringing light to it? And I feel like too often we think that poetry shouldn't be healing, right? That it should be craft. It should be this serious endeavor in which we work at, you know, the line breaks, the sejura, the prosody, to make this beautiful and undeniable thing. And I think poetry can be that for sure. But I also think it can really save us. Mm. And it's strange not to go ahead and go for it, right? If it helps, I mean, God, if it helps, do it. And I, I find myself leaning to that so much. And I think that if there is that ritual, it's about, that to go back to what I said earlier about making things that matter, it is about like, what is it that I want right now? What is it that I need? What is it that I want to share? And uh, and and to to take that seriously, but to take the act of praise seriously and to take the act of healing seriously and take the act of whatever um, recommitment to the world I need at that moment seriously. And that may mean laughter, right? That may mean writing a poem about my friends, all all of us being at a bar or, you know, something, uh, getting stoned in college or, you know, it might be, it might mean a lightness. Um, and I think sometimes if I'm really actively writing, I do think I'm more open to the world. I think I'm more present in the world. Um, and I do think it's like a meditation. It's a different practice for sure. Right. But um, but I think ritual is the right word for it. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong there.
0: Huh. Well, I, I would like to spend some time with naming, quite a bit of time with naming, actually. You employ naming and listing often in your poems. So naming and listing is within your poems, but the act of naming is also something you engage with as a topic or a theme over and over again from different angles, much like we just referenced the poem about whether the connection to nature is God or not God. Um, But before we do, I was hoping we could hear two different poems in the collection that have to do with naming, and I was thinking um, The Magnificent Frigate Bird and Drowning Creek.
5: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
2: How's your cat, by the way?
0: So far, so good. Do you see her?
2: Oh, (laughs) Oh, she's adorable. (laughs) She's so intense, too. She's like, what is happening? (laughs) I love her. Okay. Um, This is the magnificent frigate bird. Is it okay to begin with the obvious? I'm full of stones. Is it okay not to look out this window, but to look out another? Another. A mentor once said, you can't start a poem with a man looking out a window. Too many men looking out a window. What about a woman? Today is a haunting. One last orange on the counter. It is a dead fruit. We swallow dead things. Once in Rio, near Leblon, large seabirds soared over the vast South Atlantic Ocean. i had never seen them before. Eight foot wingspan and gigantic in their confident gliding, black with a red neck like a wound or a hidden treasure, or both. When I looked it up, I learned it was the magnificent frigate bird. It sounded like that enormity of a bird had named itself. What a pleasure to say, I am magnificent. And two, they traveled as a team, so I wondered if they named each other. Generously tapping one another's deeply forked tail or their plumage, glistening with salt air, their guller sacks saying, You are magnificent. You are also magnificent. It makes me want to give all my loves, the adjectives they deserve. You are resplendent. You are radiant. You are sublime. I am far away from tropical waters. I have no skill for flight or wings to skim the waves effortlessly like the wind itself. But from here, I can still imagine rapture. A glorious caught fish in the mouth of a bird. Okay. Drowning Creek. Past the strip malls and the power plants, out of the hauler, Past Bottom Road and Brassfield and before Redlick Creek there's a stream called Drowning Creek where I saw the prettiest bird I'd seen all year. The belted kingfisher crested in its Aegean blue plumage perched not on a high snag but on a transmission wire eyeing the creek for crayfish tadpoles and minnows. We were driving fast toward home and already our minds were pulled taut like a high black wire latched to a utility pole. I wanted to stop, stop the car, to take a closer look at the solitary, stocky water bird with its blue crown and its blue chest and its uncommonness. But already we were a blur and miles beyond the flying fissure by the time I had realized what I'd witnessed. People were nothing to that bird hovering over the creek. I was nothing to that bird, which wasn't concerned with history's bloody battles or why the creek was called Drowning Creek, a name I love, though it gives me shivers because it sounds like an order, a place where one goes to drown. The bird doesn't call the creek that name. The bird doesn't call it anything. I'm almost certain, though I am certain of nothing. There is a solitude, in this world, I cannot pierce. I would die for it.
0: We're listening to Ada Limon read from her latest collection, The Hurting Kind. So so one of the great things about your book opening in your garden and often being set there is not just us finding the entire world there and also your entire interior world there, but also it evoking the mythic garden, the Edenic garden, the place where language and naming begins. Not only does God speak the world into being, he also many times repeatedly, perhaps much like you do, pauses and declares it good. He speaks light into being, declares it good. He separates water from the land and calls it good. He creates plant life and calls it good, and so on. But also... This is the place where Adam was tasked with the naming of the animals. And you could say that the fall from Eden is a fall also related to language and cognition, that by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that through the development of abstract thought, the ability to live within representation beyond what we perceive in the immediate moment, that that is what separated us from nature. So I was hoping maybe you could just spend a little time with us about naming for you, why you both continually name, but also wrestle with names.
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I love all of that background you gave, and it makes me think so much about what it is my own, you know, what my own philosophy is uh, when it comes to naming and language and I think that for so long, I was really delighted. Like what, what it was to know a name of something, and it would it would make me immediately more attached to the thing. Um, like oh, what kind of tree is that? Oh, that's a hackberry, and I would say hackberry. I've never even heard of the hackberry. What a great name, you know. And then the American linden, and then the American linden seems so serious and tall and. And the silver maple and how different it is from the sugar maple, Um, it made me feel more connected, more uh, attached, and also more like I was doing that work of noticing, right? Like, oh, now I'm noticing when they pop up again and, oh, what kind of tree is this? And during the pandemic, and maybe even a little before, I just walked around my neighborhood and just tried to name and identify all the trees, which is a wonderful thing to do just in my own little neighborhood. And, you know, there's the same three crows and we think about birds being so migratory and living these lives that are much larger than ours, but very often birds are local. And so, you know, you walk out and you see the same three crows. Um, and that really made me feel like, Oh, this is, like knowing their names or what what we call them, at least in the English language was a lovely thing to a way of of witnessing them. Um, but then I also think that I think of the limitations of names, right? What is like already if we're using English or Spanish, we're already using the language of the colonizer, if we're using a native language, um, even then, what is the language that the, the bird would like to be called? What is the, what is the name that this flower is going to be called? You know, we, we always feel like we're, we have some sort of dominion over plants and animals and naming is a little bit of that ownership. And so I love the way it makes us connected, but I'm suspicious of how it gives us ownership or control or a, 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 a knowledge that we may or may not have because knowing the name is not the name that the tree came up with. Yeah. You know, I would love to know if the tree had its own name. I bet it would be amazing, you know, or maybe it would be like George, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I <doubt> it. <laughs> well, I do want to, I, I, I have so many questions about naming the garden and language in relationship to the non-human but first, we have a question for you about language from a fellow poet and podcaster, Padraig Otuma.
3: Hi, Ada. It's Padraig here. I hope you're very well. It's lovely to send a message to you via David. Um, I'm really interested in the way that your poems so often reference language. But underneath language, there's this question about understanding You know, sometimes your poems establish understanding between the voices with translation or communication. And other times I see that you um, show how uh, language is a tool of manipulation or where translation is a tool of manipulation, a certain performance of something that's keeping maybe someone's imagination of diversity quotas satisfied. And I see the way that you hold language... And underneath it, put all these layers of understanding to ask what's really happening in language. And I see you do the same thing in the slowdown, where you hold up the language of a poem and then explore the layers of understanding underneath it. And I'd love to hear you talk about some of the layers that you see underneath language and how it is that you're interested in those personally and as an artist, as well as in your wider work as a public communicator. I look forward to hearing your answer and look forward to learning.
2: What a wonderful question that is. Lovely to have him in our space today. Yes, Um, I adore his work um, on his podcast and and as a poet, as a human. Um, I think one of the things that I'm very interested in, right, is we talk about what it is to honor language, to work with language, to have that be our tool. But I'm also really interested in the failure of language. Um, and I think our reliance on it, right, is, um, is sometimes too much so. that we, how, how often are we thinking about identifying something as a way of owning or even identifying ourselves as a way of figuring out who we are? And I'm suspicious of that. I think that every time someone says I'm X, Y, and Z, I think, hmm, no, you're so much more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have got, you've got so much going on. And I think that too, when we think of standing in the woods and we think, Oh yeah, this is, this is the elm, you know, this is the hemlock. This is the redwood. That's great. And wonderful. But then what is it to just be with them? to be in silence and communion with the trees, to just be in awe and wonder, to not be interested in identifying, but instead to be interested in listening, to not be talking back, but to be receiving, to be holding the world. Um, And I think sometimes as human beings and as artists, we think our job is to do that naming, is to do that, valuing of language. And I think part of our job is to understanding how it fails, to understand how much larger the world is beyond language, right? We always say, if we're experiencing something incredibly beautiful or incredibly moving, we think, I don't have words for this, right? I don't have words for this. And that's that's beautiful. Yeah. Like that, I live for those moments of like I don't know the language for this. And that's not, you know, a failure as a human being. It's just that the that language doesn't offer us that. And I'm really interested in what goes beyond language and what is the silence between two people, what is the the look between two people, the touch, you know, what is it to touch a tree? The heat that comes off the bark, Um, you know, that's those moments are indescribable. And of course I spend my life trying to describe them, but I find um, the work of, as Patrick said, the underneath work, right? The layers underneath it, that's really the work. Um, And language can do so much, but on some level, it's always going to, it's always going to, let us down a little bit, um, which sometimes is a way of getting into a poem because you think, oh, there's no way I could write a poem. But then if you think of it, ah, it's never going to get it right anyway. You can kind of start. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of start. Allow yourself to begin.
0: Yes. Well, this is going to seem like a strange uh, pivot, but maybe not <laughs> as strange as uh, Groundhog's and Pizza to Pizarnik, but <laughs> This year, there's been a new monthly series on, on my show called Crafting with Ursula, where writers come on the show to engage with questions of craft in their own writing in relationship to the writing of Ursula Le Guin. Um, and of course, some of these conversations, as would be expected, are about science fiction and fantasy, about imagining future livable worlds or questions around imagining alien species. But many of them have become about the human in relationship to the non-human, both in the world itself, but also how we represent it in our writing, how we place the human in a narrative or within a poem, and also how we include or exclude everything that isn't human. Um, In addition, her, her worlds are very much about naming, and the magic of spells for Le Guin is word magic of knowing something's true name, which is not the same as its name. And because of this and all these questions we're raising now, uh, she's sort of doubly on my mind. So what I'm going to do, if you'll indulge me, is I'm just going to play a five-minute segment of Le Guin as a lead-in to some questions. Um, It's part of a speech that she gave at an ecological conference, but then she reread it for me the time she came on the show to talk specifically about poetry. Uh, So I'm going to play that, and,
5: um, and then we'll talk a little bit. To use the world well, to be able to stop wasting it and our time in it, we need to relearn our being in it. Skill in living awareness of belonging to the world, delight in being part of the world, always tends to involve knowing our kinship as animals with animals. Darwin first gave that knowledge a scientific basis. And now both poets and scientists are extending the rational aspect of our sense of relationship to creatures without nervous systems and to non-living beings. Our fellowship as creatures with other creatures, things with other things, Relationship, among all things, appears to be complex and reciprocal, always at least two-way back and forth. It seems that nothing is single in this universe, and nothing goes one way. In this view, we humans appear as particularly lively, intense, aware, nodes of relation in an infinite network of connections, simple or complicated, direct or hidden, strong or delicate, temporary or very long-lasting, a web of connections, infinite but locally fragile, with and among everything, all beings, including what we generally class as things, objects. Descartes and the behaviorists willfully saw dogs as machines without feeling, Is seeing plants as without feeling a similar arrogance? One way to stop seeing trees or rivers or hills only as natural resources is to class them as fellow beings, kinfolk. I guess I'm trying to subjectify the universe because look where objectifying it has gotten us. To subjectify is not necessarily to co-opt or colonize or exploit. Rather, it may involve a great reach outward of the mind and imagination. What tools have we got to help us make that reach? In Romantic Things, Mary Jacobus wrote, The regulated speech of poetry may be as close as we can get to such things, to the stilled voice of the inanimate object or the insentient standing of trees. Poetry is the human language that can try to say what a tree or a rock or a river is. That is to speak humanly for it, in both senses of the word for A poem can do so by relating the quality of an individual human relationship to a thing, a rock, a river, or tree, or simply by describing the thing as truthfully as possible. Science describes accurately from outside. Poetry describes accurately from inside. Science explicates. Poetry implicates Both celebrate what they describe. We need the languages of both science and poetry to save us from merely stockpiling endless information that fails to inform our ignorance or our irresponsibility. By replacing unfounded, willful opinion, science can increase moral sensitivity By demonstrating and performing aesthetic order or beauty, poetry can move minds to the sense of fellowship that prevents careless usage and exploitation of our fellow beings, waste and cruelty. Poetry often serves religion, and the monotheistic religions privileging humanity's relationship with the divine encourage arrogance. Yet even in that hard soil, poetry will find the language of compassionate fellowship with our fellow beings. The 17th century Christian mystic Henry Vaughan wrote, So hills and valleys into singing break, and though poor stones have neither speech nor tongue, While active winds and streams both run and speak, yet stones are deep in admiration. By admiration, Vaughn meant reverence for God's sacred order of things and joy in it, delight. By admiration, I understand reverence for the infinite connectedness the naturally sacred order of things and joy in it, delight. So we admit stones to our holy communion. And so the stones may admit us to theirs. So
2: um I love that. That was wonderful. Isn't it? <laughs> let's just let's just sit here and listen, all oh, of that would be <laughs> wonderful.
0: Yes. Um I, I can imagine sitting by a fire for sto- story time with Ursula, for sure. Um, part of the reason I played this is because of the way she rescues the word reverence from the context of religious dominion over nature. Um, that inspires the poem sh- she reads near the end, uh, which reminds me of your poem about the word God. But but mostly I played it because of the lines it seems that nothing is single in this universe and nothing goes one way. And then the final lines. So we admit stones to our Holy communion. So the stones may admit us to theirs because to me, it feels connected to something about your naming, not just the naming of the magnificent frigate bird is magnificent or, um, that the bird is not naming you in drowning Creek. Um, But Le Guin has a story called She Unnames Them about Eve, uh, removing the names from all the animals that Adam has named. All the animals except the yaks who are happy with their name. Um, But um, in your last collection, the carrying opens with Eve naming the animals instead of Adam naming them. But what I think is most notable in that poem of yours is not the gender switch, which the which I think is notable, um, but that you also wonder if Eve ever wanted the animals to speak back if she craved to be named by them. Um, so both Le Guin and your solution to naming feel like they're bidirectional and that your Eve is rescuing naming from its worst self in a sense. And part of that is maybe related to this, listening and not speaking and not naming um even though she is naming but she's naming in a spirit of of wanting to be named um by that which she's naming I guess if I wondered if any of this rang true to you and and any any other thoughts that you had about um what Ursula just read
2: yeah so true um it was really beautiful what she was saying and I feel like one of the things that you know I'm, I'm I've been working with and just reckoning with myself is that you know our own just broken relationship with the land and with animals and plants and it does feel like it has become antagonistic. it's become um, essentially a, a a place of commerce, you know and i'm I'm very curious as to what we can do for to heal that relationship because I don't think, we can even begin to heal our relationship with each other without witnessing and starting to heal our relationship with the land. And that doesn't mean that you are necessarily working the land or living in some rural setting, right? I think you can do that in the urban setting as well. Having lived in New York for so long, you know, there are plenty of plants and trees and animals, and that, which you can have some, you know, communion with, um, And I feel like there's a certain amount of uh, going back to that centering of the self, the centering of the human, making us the the God, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. God in our image, all of those things. I find that really important to interrogate and question and pull apart and figure out what it is that even as we look now at power structures in the human world, what is it to also pull apart the power structures between ourselves and the land, ourselves and the earth. Um, And for me, I think it's essential to working in, in poetry, of course, my own poems, but I think it's also how I wanna be in the world. Um, And like, when we go back to that sort of naming and and renaming, but also like what it is to witness and then be witnessed, right? That it's not always me that gets to go into the field and say, you're this flower, you're this flower. Like what, I am also an animal that the field gets to name, you know, even now, I think like often we'll say, oh, you know, my, my birds at the backyard feeder, and then immediately think, well, it's not really my backyard my house is kind of on in their field, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. it's like this whole, like, I, I question it, you know, I question yeah. even how we speak about it. Um, I mean, and I think that, I think that it goes back to like, with our, like turning that language into, um, or turning that, uh, relationship into reciprocity. I think is key to how, at least I want to live in the world and how I hope more and more people can do so. Um, Otherwise, it's so lonely, I think, so lonely to not feel connected to your own earth.
0: The question you posed about, can we engage with structural power between us and other species? So the fact that we have uh, species supremacy now on the earth i think the statistic is something like 96% of the mammalian biomass on the planet is humans our pets and our livestock um so beyond your your deep engagement with plants and animals and this question around naming honoring them forgiving them for stealing your tomatoes or or celebrating them for stealing your tomatoes you you also have poems where you imagine yourself as non human, um, mm. a horse in the poem Unspoken, a half burned tree in salvage, mm. which makes me think of this question that you raise in in the verses podcast with Dinez and Franny, where you were you were talking about you were wanting to write about animals without colonizing them. And I guess I just wanted to hear more about what that because this goes to the question obviously around uh, power or structure what are, what are the parameters or what are the ethos? What does it mean to colonize an animal or a plant in a poem versus not? Because I think of the line in another poem of human-animal reciprocity of yours called Sanctuary, where you're made whole not by witnessing, but here you're being made whole by being witnessed. And the, and the poem has the line, I have before been tricked into believing I could be both an I and the world which makes me think that you think a lot about how to do this in a way that feels like right relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. Perhaps in the way Ursula was talking about poetry being not the tech, not a technology, but like science, one way we, we um, engage with these other beings in a way that might have the potential to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I find myself sort of speechless because I, it's hard to explain. <laughs> it's hard to talk about what that is to feel that sense of reciprocity, you know, as um, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about in Braiding Sweetgrass, you know, that quote, like all flourishing is mutual to think of ourselves as, as being able to, to encourage some kind of flourishing in our own world Um, and not always to own. And I'm interested in ownership, right? I'm interested, you know, of course you, you feel like you own a home, right? I never thought I'd own a home and I, I love the fact that we have a place that is ours, but I am curious about ours and my and ownership. And I think it's wise to do that. I mean, I think it's, It feels like the more we question what it is to feel like we are on some sort of hierarchy, a higher level than the earth, I think that if we don't interrogate that, well, we already see where it has gotten us, right? Um, And it will just continue. If we don't start to realize to realize that our relationship has to be reciprocal, but it also has to be a reimagining of what's possible between us because of that broken relationship, the harm that has been done. And on a larger level, on the ways that we often feel like so much is dependent upon us. So much is um. Oh, the, 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 the mind, the chaos of the mind, the, I've got to get everything done. I've got to be right. I've got to be good. I've got to be smart. I have to make sure I have enough money for this and that. And I need to call that person back and all of these worries and these troubles. And isn't there a way sometimes that imagining ourselves as the original animal, as an animal, we can let some of that stuff go for a second and start to remember that, oh, well, some of this is, you know, the evolutionary development of the brain that has a negativity bias, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of this is, is just, you know, that we think we're very evolved, but in that part, you know, we've actually failed a little bit. Our brains, our brains are <laughs> troublemakers yeah. and um, even witnessing that, right. That that's sort of a, an issue with our own making and our own species. We can kind of put that aside and be like, yeah, all right, that's, a, that's something that I can make some room for, some space for, and not take myself so seriously. Um, not take myself so much so that the world revolves around me, that if I make a mistake, the world will end. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how we've brought up people, to really believe that you know you are special, you are amazing, and in that specialness, so much is required of you, Great things are required of you and we don't give enough of a sort of credit for just being, you know, Mm. just being, that's enough sometimes, you know, (laughs) like let's all, let's all operate at like 70%, 50%, (laughs) see what happens. Like, I just feel like there's so much pressure. And I think sometimes re-examining that relationship with the nature with the idea of ownership and rightness. And, you know, we're not masters. We are not masters of the land. We, we're not the colonizers. Like we have to decolonize our brains to remember that. And it's very hard because what we're taught is that we're in charge. And because we're in charge, we can't mess up. And I, I, I worry about that. I worry about that for our mental health, for our young people that feel like so much pressure is on them. And that's partly because they feel alone. Um, and would you feel that way if if you felt more in connection to the world? I, d- I don't think you would.
0: Well, I wanted to think about some of these questions about representing animals in human language and wondering whether or not they're related to some of the things you've said about transformation and metaphor. So I'm gonna quote mm-hmm. you back to yourself now um, and then see if you think there's a connection. It's easy to want the metaphor. It makes life easier. I was recently reading this book, The Happiness Hypothesis, and the author says, Human thinking depends on metaphor. We understand new or complex things in relation to things we already know. And it's also hard to think about the mind. But once you pick a metaphor, it will guide your thinking. And then you continue. This, I think, is a powerful argument for the necessity of reading, writing, listening to, and memorizing poetry. What if it can help us organize our weird life's journey better? What if what it accomplishes is simply that life can be more easily lived, can be made beautifully clear, can be shrunk to a size more swallowable? When I was 15, I understood loss by repeating the Bishop line, I lost my mother's watch once which meant that great loss was still to come. Heartbreak was to me the Robert Haas line, bees in the heart, then scorpions, maggots, and then ash. Homesickness was the Yates line, I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree, and so forth. If what hate says is true, then these lines are actually allowing me to understand my own life in a way that makes it more manageable. You've also said that you love transformation. And here you aren't speaking of the transformation of metaphor, but thematically, but that many of your favorite poems have transformations in them or are about transformation and that you are drawn to it. But that perhaps like naming, you also distrust it. That perhaps similar to when you say it's easy to want metaphor, perhaps it's easy to also put a transformation in your poem that isn't earned and that isn't authentic to your life, that you keep asking yourself about the authenticity of what you're putting in. And I guess I was hoping you could speak to um, transformation or, and or metaphor in that light, um, the, the attraction to it and then maybe the easiness of, of putting it in there when it doesn't feel totally earned
2: yeah that's really lovely I feel like um of course I love metaphor and of course I love transformation and I think part of that is because I mean I still remember those first moments when a metaphor in a poem rang so true to me that I was taken aback you know that it would make you gasp and think oh what like I know that I didn't think anyone else knew that I thought I was completely alone in my isolation, in my own madness. And then you think, oh no, that person just said it so clearly, so true. And now I, I not only feel like I'm able to name what it was that I was going through, but also feel connected that there might be other people that are also going through that. I think that's incredibly powerful and you know, we talk about it. We kind of like, of course, yeah, yeah. It teaches empathy, blah, blah blah. You know, but it's really important. It really does work. Um, and I, I mean, I was a young person that that was it. It 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 molded me. It shaped me. It made me feel like there were so many things that were possible. It also made me think that this life was really interesting. You know, I think that I I was someone who wanted a lot of stimulation, um, and when I read poems, I felt like, oh, right, this is, this is what it is. It's that this all of this witnessing and all of this trying to make sense of something that could be a life's work. Um, so that was really fascinating to me. And I, I also love the way of like, oh yeah, we have to, you know, metaphors, how we describe things to people, right? We say like, oh, you know, if I'm not feeling well, you know, or nervous. We say we have butterflies in the stomach and it's such a way of describing what that feels like. Well, you can imagine them in there, you know, it's a, a good way of describing. And it, it makes us feel like, oh, when we do it with doctors, you know, we say, well, like, well, this migraine feels like, you know, an ice pick to the back of the neck or, you know, I mean, this is we this is how we describe our pain to each other, even our love, right? Um, So I love that. Uh, And I do think it's a way of organizing. I think I am always interested in um, when people worry about metaphor and they, you know, students will be like, how do you get the right one? I think it's often just because we don't, um, we don't accept that it's just actually quite easy. We do it. We do it naturally. You know, if you really think about it, it's like, that's, that's just how we think. Mm -hmm. It's so this is like this or. This feels like this, or, you know, it's just, and so I think sometimes it's a, more of a, a forcing thing that we feel like, oh, in order to craft a poem, I, n- I must have this really fantastical metaphor that no one has ever considered. And in reality, I think if you're really paying attention to the self and what your body is actually doing and in, in, in wanting, you can kind of move into a metaphor that makes more sense for you. And it's usually Id- idiosyncratic to your own voice um, and to your own mind because you're already doing it, you're already doing it in your brain. Um, And I think that's something that I'm always like stay true to is that it's not something that you're sort of reaching outward for some strange metaphor that will make the poem better. It's reaching out for a metaphor that you already know, right, and writing it down. Um, And that's a big difference for me. Um, And then I think with transformation, I mean, it's really easy to want every poem to like have this kind of, you know, epiphany. Like I, you know, like I want, I would love that, you know, and, but not every poem wants to do that. And not every poem of mine certainly wants to do that. Um, If I was having those huge transformational moments every day, you know, I'd probably be laid up for weeks. You know, (laughs) I think would be, I would be on overwhelm. And so I think with that kind of consideration of, of when those transformations happen those are those are poems that have stood out to us forever right because we all go oh that was a moment in this poet's life that they had they really traveled through their own emotional journey and something hit them something was shown to them um you can't force it and i think when you do that's when you get poems that feel performative, right? Or they feel a little false, they ring untrue. Um, And so it's like those things that we love, I think one thing for, well, just to go back, the metaphor, I think it's actually easier than we think. I think we make it harder on ourselves because we're we're thinking about the audience before we're thinking about the self. And I think we need to think about what it really means. What is the comparative mind doing? Mm -hmm. And then in transformation, I think it's really key to remember that, you know, sometimes the poem just needs to be enough. It just needs to watch. It just needs to listen, just needs to do that art of recording. And, um, you know, transformation will come in the next poem, but it's not every poem. It couldn't be. Yeah.
0: Well, I I picked out two more poems that jumped out to me as poems that are about fellow feeling with the non-human, but also poems where it's really clear that you're concerned about allowing these creatures to to be themselves apart from you at the same time, like um, leaving them their own, in a, in a way their own interiority in a way in the poem. Uh, and I was thinking of Sirius and the Snakes and Intimacy.
2: Mm, thank you. This is a poem I wrote for my older brother, Cyrus and I was trying to figure out how to talk about his love of snakes and I um I came up with this poem Cyrus and the snakes My brother holds a snake by its head The whole length of the snake is the length of my brother's body The snake's head is held safely securely as if my brother is showing it something in the distant high grass. I don't know why he wants to hold them, their strong bodies wrapping themselves around the warmth of his arm, constricting and made of circles and momentum, slippery coolness, smooth against the ground. Still, this image of him holding a snake as it snakes as snakes do, both a noun and a verb and a story that doesn't end well. Once, we stole an egg from the backyard chicken coop and cracked it just to see what was inside, a whole, unhatched chick. Where we expected yolk and mucus was an unfeathered and unfurled sweetness. We stared at the thing, dead now and unshelled by curiosity and terrible youth. My brother pretended not to care so much while I cried, though only a little. Still, we buried it in the brush by the creeping thistle that tore up our arms with their speared leaves barbed at the ends like weapons stuck in the rattlesnake grass. But I knew, I knew that he'd cry if he was alone, if he wasn't a boy in the summer heat being a boy in the summer heat. Years later, back from Mexico or South America, he'd admit he was tired of history of always discovering the ruin by ruining it, wrecking a forest for a temple, a temple that should simply be left a temple. He wanted it all to stay as it was, even if it went undiscovered. I want to honor a man who wants to hold a wild thing only for a second, long enough to admire it fully, and then wants to watch it safely return to its life, bends to be sure the grass closes up behind it. This is a poem I wrote for my mother. Intimacy. I remember watching my mother with the horses, the cool, fluid way she'd guide those enormous bodies around the long field the way she'd shoulder one aside if it got too close, if it got greedy with the alfalfa or apple. I was never like that, never so confident around those four-legged giants who could kill with one kick or harm with one toss of their strong heads. To me, it didn't make sense to trust a thing that could destroy you so quickly. To reach out your hand and stroke the deep separateness of a beast, that long gap of silence between you, knowing it would eat the apples with as much pleasure from any flattened palm. Is that why she moved with them so easily? There is a truth in that smooth indifference, a clean honesty about our otherness that feels not like the moral
0: but the story. Listening to Ada Limon read from her latest collection from milkweed, the Herding kind. So I was recently listening to Alice Oswald's latest Oxford lecture, and it's called a lament for the earth, addressing the challenge to nature poetry, mm. which is very nuanced. So my, my summary of some of it will certainly lose some of that in, simplifica- I'll have to listen to in it. simplification. It. It's great. But she sees two types of nature poetry, that of the sigh, which is more well-mannered, the elegy, the ode, the pastoral, and that of the scream, which is related to the keen. I don't know if you've read The Ghost in the Throat by Deryn Negrifa, uh, but when she was on the show, we we talked a lot about the Irish tradition of keening, where women, often who were denied literacy, were composing and, and carrying laments for the dead in their bodies and then passing them down to other women body to body through time. But back to Oswald, she genders the nature poetry also um, from from the sigh, which she associates more with men uh, versus the nature poetry from The Scream. And she says the former sees humans as mattering as little as the leaves on a tree. The latter sees each leaf as mattering as much as every human. Uh, The former, through elegy and obituary, gives perspective to the bereaved. The latter refuses replaceability. Oswald says, Keening dwells, howls, repeats. It does not just mourn, but expresses an altered state of mind, an amazed timelessness. Female lament is an attempt to articulate an unspeakable state. Traditionally, it has been loud, shrill, performative, oral, repetitive, disturbing, nonlinear, and inconsolable. Its drift is against dailiness, against forgetting, against life itself even to the point of stirring up revenge, so that at least since the 6th century BC, there have been legal prescriptions against its practice. Often this type of lament refuses to use human syntax. It adopts an interspecies language in which women shriek like birds or stand with arms raised as if they've turned into trees. They do this not just by way of complaining, but as a means to communicate with beings which are outside time. The dead, for example, who need to be reminded where they are, or the gods, so that almost inadvertently, keening speaks a kind of Esperanto in which trees, birds, corpses, humans, and the earth itself can communicate across time zones. I bring this up as an entryway into talking about death and also about the body and the female body in poetry. I'm thinking first of my conversation with Roske, another poet who, like you, is often associated with joy and wonder and delight, but also, like you, a poet who's very engaged with death, where he says that joy arises from an understanding of that which we share in common and that being that we're all going to die. And that if we acknowledge this together— a softening happens, and joy can enter the space between us. Uh, He says, joy is a grave feeling, a serious feeling, a feeling infused with the act of dying, the feeling of disappearing into and profoundly joining something. I feel like you can say that your books and your poems are very death haunted, um, are run through with precarity. Uh, And I'm thinking of these keeners shrieking like, birds and standing like trees by the graves of their loved ones and Ross's notion of joy as a grave feeling um, as I, I wanted to evoke them as I ask you to talk about writing about death
2: mm, I love all of that that's so wonderful and um, I need to know more about Keening I'm going to immediately go do a deep dive into that Um, I feel like one of the things that um, has really propelled my life and my art and has made me shift my life and all of those things um, was the death of my stepmother in February of 2010. Um, She was not yet 52, or she just turned 52. And um, I think going through something like that, a home death, where you're by that person's side and helping that person. It does really put everything into perspective, right? Um, And I think so many people have gone through this now with the pandemic as we lose people on a daily basis. Um, And I think that it really surprised me. And even though I was in my 30s, early 30s when this happened, I think it really shocked me. that everyone was going to go through this, even though I knew it, right. Intellectually, I knew it, but it wasn't only that I was going to go through it. My own body was going to go through it, but that everyone also was going to lose their parents and was going to lose the people they loved friends. And I don't think I could have been more profoundly shifted. Um, And I think it's one of the reasons I moved out of New York. And I think it's one of the reasons I uh, really committed to making art because I really felt like, what was it to align myself with the way I wanted to live my life? I kept thinking, well, what if I have only until 52? What does that look like? What do I, what do I want to have done? How do I want to spend my hours? And I think In that, at first became, let me figure figure it out right for myself. What is it that I'm going through? What was it to witness this? And then I think, of course, as we go through more and more deaths and lose people, and I think that there's a certain surrender that happens. And that surrender, I think, can bring joy. I think there is a sort of practice of giving into mortality as opposed to trying to fight against it. Now, I'm not saying I don't want to live forever. I mean, it'd be wonderful to live at least until a hundred, but I think I I want to be sure to realize that if I'm always going forward in a way that is like the next day is going to be better or the next day or this, I will attain this. What am I missing? Right. And I, I want to be really clear that it's not that I don't fear it. Right. I I don't have some sort of supernatural power to not fear my own mortality. I mean, if I did, that would be marvelous, but I, I clearly, you know, Like most people, I I would like to be healthy and I would like to live for a long time. Um, But I think that acknowledgement of death, the work of that, and it is work, only leads to praise. And I think the more that we set it aside and feel like it's separate from us and feel like it's something that doesn't have anything to do with us, it is almost mirroring our broken relationship with the land right is our broken relationship with our own mortality because all of that is denial and all of that is not living fully and holy, in which we're animals in which our time is short <laughs> you know my stepfather would always say life is short even though sometimes it can feel really long
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: i love that. I was when i you know when i was 16 i'd be like yeah yeah um But I think that that acknowledgement of mortality and I mean that in a real way, I don't mean just like, yeah, of course we're all going to die. But I think like, what is it to really think about that and to hold it in your heart and maybe even to weep about it and just be like, I don't want to lose anyone. I don't want to. And I don't, I really don't. Um, But what it does after you've done that sort of initial shock and grief it just makes you want to love. <laughs> it yeah. just makes you want to praise. And it want, it makes you want to sort of get on your knees and go, Oh my God, look what I get. Look what I get to do. Look what I get to be a part of. And um, I think it's at the core of who I am, but I think it's very much a thread of my poems as well.
0: Well, this, this notion of, of, um, death only leading to praise, um, and me bringing up the part of the reason why I wanted to bring up death in order to complicate the notion of joy and even the notion of praise is that it feels like earnestness and wonder and joy are easy to make fun of, uh, or look down on, um perhaps because of the most facile versions of these things, which we also see in the world. Um, in the spirit of a more complicated look at these things, I, I wanted to take a look at both sentimentality and accessibility. Um, you had a conversation a couple years ago with Carrie Fountain on her podcast. And in that one, it became quite a bit about sentimentality and sort of a gendered double standard around how heartfelt emotional work is received or dismissed. Mm. And similarly in your conversation with Mike Sakasagawa for keeping the channel open also years ago. Now you spent a good deal of time on questions of accessibility. That one wasn't necessarily gendered when you were discussing it, but the subtext of both of these conversations feels like a grappling with a critique of certain types of poetry and or a critique around how certain words are weaponized against certain poetries. So uh, to return to your On Art and Anxiety blog post, um, which is seven years old, so I I don't know how (laughs) much this reflects where you're at or not, but I still feel like it's useful for other art makers to hear. You talk about how if you write from your gut, if you stop trying to hide, and you write with the goal to connect to in some ways be direct, that you are often grappling with the fear of not seeming intelligent. Mm. And you say it's a big fear for a lot of women in particular, and particularly if you're writing about your feelings and how the word feelings makes you think of the words naive and dumb and how it is viewed entirely different when men write about their feelings, that they are being brave and that when women do, they might be seen as overly emotional, needy, or whiny, and worst of all, that it's, it's simply easy to talk about one's feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that's just what happens for women. So maybe, maybe when you write from your feelings, you're not even using craft because of that. Um, Daniel Slager, your editor and Milkweed's publisher, in discussing the great success of your poetry in the world, the ways in which you are one of the exceptions to the lack of commercial success for poetry collections. He says, in the poetry world, the whole notion of being approachable or readable can be a curse because it's often thought to be antithetical to sophistication artistically, a stupid dichotomy really, although at times there's something to it. But Ada just transcends that in such a beautiful way with so much integrity. Poets poets love her, and people who don't read that much poetry love her. I, I wondered if any of this sparks any thoughts about your own career, your poetics and aesthetics, and or speaking to other poets uh, around this question of um, being emotionally direct. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, for for lack of a better word, reaching to connect whether that's a, a increasing readability or accessibility or not, but this the, the desire to to write a poetry of connection with the reader.
2: Yeah. I love that because I think these are really big topics, and I think that um, it's an ongoing issue that we have with poetry about what is um, valued, right? What is important, um And I think, you know, I think it's shifting to be honest. I think there are some elements to which people are starting to defend what it is to have sentiment in a poem, um, to use maybe language that before felt maybe not as uh, serious, as intellectually apt to poetry. And I think that just from a personal perspective, when I first started out in poems, I really thought that a lot of what I wanted to do in my own work in graduate school was to prove that I knew craft and to prove that I was smart. Um, And I think that I am not as interested in that anymore. And that's probably because I don't think I am. I mean, I don't think I'm wise. I don't think I have anything... You know there's not and I and I think that's partly because I thought that's what poets did was to be um to have a sort of wisdom and now I, I don't believe that. Um I think that for me it's been always interested interesting to to hear people say like oh you you were my sort of gateway poet or you're the poet that you know brought me to other poems but for some reason I could get into yours more than I could to other people's It's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure why that happens. Uh, I love it. I honor it. Um, It feels like a gift. But again, I didn't write bright dead things for anyone else really, except for like me and my friends and my, you know, and, and I think that partly though, I'll say this is that I do write for people that aren't necessarily poets and that's important to me. Um, I have a lot of friends that are poets and they read my first drafts and, you know, we have that wonderful uh, relationship that gives, you know, editing and, and reading first drafts. But um, I grew up at a time in in poetry, especially in New York, where it felt like everything was about a sort of cleverness, um, a sarcasm, a obfuscation. And, I think at first I thought that, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways I think obfuscating skating is a little easier um, than being direct, but I did sort of wonder about why you would go to a poetry reading and someone would describe their poem and they, you know, you'd be laughing and you would think, Oh, that's going to be so fun to read, to listen to this poem. And then they would read it and you'd be like, Oh, that doesn't have anything to do with what they just said. Right. And it would feel sort of, it, you would be like, it would be the human self that told the story or introduced the poem. And then a sort of robot self that would read the poem. Mm. And I was just interested as to what would be if you just maintained the human self on the page. <laughs> yeah, And I think that has been my work, is that what is it to be who I am on the page? Um, And I think that the big thing that um, maybe people don't discuss enough of when we talk about accessibility and sentimentality is that um, saying the thing directly doesn't mean that you're not using all elements of prosody. It doesn't mean that you're not leaning into music in a huge way. Um, I think, as you know, I mean, I'm incredibly musical in what I write. And I think sometimes, sometimes, what people find accessible or, you know, in, in that, they, that they somehow find something in it um, is actually the music. And I think that when we talk about language failing and giving space for silence, I think music is the thing that takes over when language itself is letting us down. And I'm a big fan of that. I think surrendering to that music and listening to that music and watching that unravel in the way where, however it goes, feels like something um, really essential to my work. Um, and so I sometimes wonder if, if that also has something to do with it in terms of what people are drawn to, um, because I don't shy away from the musicality.
0: Yeah, some of these this notion of your career moving away from the performative and the clever towards something that feels more real for you. And also this question of directness and intelligence reminds me of uh, when Forrest Gander picked one of your poems to be on the New Yorker podcast and then discusses it with Kevin Young. Uh, And they they pick it, yes, because, or Forrest picks it, yes, because of the way it portrays the human and the non-human world. But he also picked it even more because of the ways this poem is in conversation with other poems and literary history and with the making of meaning. And he sees this poem of yours, Privacy, in conversation with very specific poems by Wallace Stevens and then later with a poem by Ezra Pound. And he talks about the long O's and U sounds, words like one, come, crow, closely, both, know, only that these sounds, according to linguists, across many languages are connected to deeper uh, emotions. Mm. And then Kevin brings in Ted Hughes's Crow poems and Gander weaves in Lorca, and Kevin talks about how he loves how your poem is thinking with us out loud. And then Forrest calls this sort of thinking visceral thinking, which I really love. But um, But if you come to this poem with no knowledge of poetry... You don't know who Wallace Stevens is. You don't have any orientation to literary history. None of these engagements with other poets is obvious or pointed to um, to someone who you don't need to know a reference or know that history when reading it. The language is the language we encounter day to day. The vocabulary doesn't require us to go seek out a dictionary. Uh, The imagery is is immediately engage, we can engage with it. I guess I wonder if this is related to when you say you don't want to hide because that all of this so-called intellectual thinking, mm-hmm. um, all that you know about poetry in this way is there in this poem, right? But it's behind this visceral thinking, mm-hmm. I guess, or this mm-hmm. visceral feeling thinking. Is that, is that right? That, um, that part of the poetics then is not to show off yeah. the lineage of the poem?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's partly not to, it's not just to show like that sort of like, here's what I know. And you can only receive this poem if you have prior knowledge of other poems. I never loved that when I was uh, when I was uh, growing up as an artist it always felt like I mean I didn't mind doing the work you know of course I would go and go to the library and find out who they were talking about who they were referring to. Um, and I loved you know when people I remember Frank O'Hara would always mention so many wonderful artists and um, I would look up and and would and go to find the paintings. And to figure out, oh, this—he's talking about this painting, and this—that's why this poem is so amazing, and that's why they're in tandem. But you don't need to know that. In Frank O'Hara, right, right, and I think that um, I loved his work partly because there almost felt like there was this effortlessness, um, and it felt like it was deeply human. But of course, on a craft level, it's doing so many interesting things. It's bringing in so many different references, but you don't feel like you have to know all of those things in order to get the real heat and
0: marrow of the poem. Could, could we hear that poem that Forrest picked, Privacy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Privacy. On the black, wet branches of the linden, still clinging to the umber leaves of late fall, to Crow's Land. They say, stop. And still, I want to make them into something they are not. Odin's ravens, the Brujas' eyes. What news are they bringing of our world to the world of the gods? It can't be good. More suffering all around, more stinging nettles and toxic blades shoved into the scarred parts of us the minor ones, underneath the trees. Rain comes while I'm still standing, a trickle of water from whatever we believe is beyond the sky. The crows seem enormous, but only because I'm watching them too closely. They do not care to be seen as symbols. A shake of a wing, and both of them are gone. There was no message given, no message I was asked to give only their great absence and my sad privacy returning like the bracing empty wind on the black wet
0: branches of the linden. I'm listening to Ada Limon read from The Hurting Kind. So when I was talking to Ruby Alamedin uh, after our conversation was over, we, we were chatting for a while while not recording and, Somehow we got onto the topic of the poetry group that he's in with you. Um, so it's fitting. It's called the the Poetry Unicorns, the probably mm-hmm. the most amazing poetry group I've ever heard of. And um, <laughs> and it's fitting, I guess, that I've sort of randomly brought Ursula Le Guin in. That I'm also going to bring some unicorns into this conversation. I love and, it. And two of these unicorns have questions for you, and they're both coincidentally about in some fashion about revision and and drafting so i'm going to play them if they're not the same but i'm going to play them together and then um and then you can answer as you see fit okay all right
1: you have this talent or skill to make your work sound as if poems come to you fully formed and you write them down smile at their fabulousness and then take a stroll in the meadow to pick wildflowers again. We all know how silly that notion is, but then, lo and behold, I came across this amazing poem of yours. I know one should not read a poet's poem back to her, but I must, I must. What I didn't know before. What I didn't know before was how horses simply give birth to other horses. Not a baby by any means, not a creature of liminal spaces, but already a four-legged beast hell-bent on walking, scrambling after her mother. A horse gives way to another horse, and then suddenly there are two horses just like that. That's how I loved you. You, off the long train from Red Bank, carrying a coffee as big as your arm, a bag with two computers swinging in it unwieldily at your side, I remember we broke into laughter when we saw each other. What was between us wasn't a fragile thing to be cuddled, cooed over. It came out fully formed, ready to run. And I read this poem and I thought, wait a second. Is Ada telling us that poems come to her fully formed, ready to run? Is she? Basically, darling, the question is, how much editing do you usually do with a poem?
0: So our first unicorn, in case you didn't know, um, you know, but in case our listeners didn't know, is Ravi Alamadine. And here's our second unicorn.
2: You love Ravi. Hi, Ada.
4: It's Victoria Chang. How are you? I hope you're well. Here's my question. Once you visited one of my classes, and I remember so vividly what you said about revision, you said that you read your poems aloud and revised them based on how they sound, their musicality, lyricism, and rhythm. And when I read your poems, I definitely feel and sense this as well. I'm curious to know then, if sound may be your primary revision, propulsive crystal, or whatever metaphor you want to use, then what is it when you draft a poem? And of course, it doesn't have to be one thing. Is it imagery, sound again, narrative, all of the above, or something more abstract like strangeness, mystery,
2: or emotion? I love both of those. Oh, it just makes you want to hang out with them.
0: <laughs> Me too.
2: I know. Um, wow, I love that. I wish poems came out fully formed. Sometimes I think they do come out more done than I expect. And usually that's because it's something that's been moving in my body for a long time before I put it down on the page, either if it's the language, the music or the image. And so that by the time it comes out and I've actually writing it, it's, it's somewhat complete um, and those are, you know, the days where you have to go like play the lottery or something because it's so rare, um, but it does happen. Um, and I love the question about revision because I think that for me, I revise definitely for sound and I, that is true um, because I do compose out loud. I do write and read out loud almost everything. So that by the time I publish a poem, it's um, I've read it probably you know at least 50 times out loud and I'm just listening for things that feel off um, or maybe too neat, you know, and maybe it needs to be distressed a little bit, or maybe there's like a some rhyme that went in that I want to actually land on harder or, um, but it really goes into the song-like quality for me. Um, but I think when I'm first starting to write, when I'm actually composing, I'm interested in finding something out. I'm interested in discovering something. So often it starts with an image. um, And then I want to know where it leads me. And I'm always asking myself, but why? Why does it matter? And it's just a constant series of questions that I'm asking myself. And then the poem kind of unfolds on that level, which is like, how does it it come to me, right? I mean, if even like you take a poem like Robbie read, Like it's that question of, I remember knowing really well that, um, that image of the horse coming out of a horse, (laughs) horses being born is so amazing to me, but I didn't know what to do with it. I really just thought I would start with that image and be like, it's so bizarre. A horse just comes out of another horse. And then I thought, oh no, that's what it is it is what is what comes out fully formed what comes out and it wasn't poems of course it was love mm-hmm. um, and that's that, that was and that, it surprised me that that's where it went so a lot of it is just asking myself well, well what, why is this image haunting me what is what does it do and it's that interrogation that will lead me to some sort of poem hopefully or maybe a draft or maybe something that gets tossed in the trash
0: well, as we st- start coming towards a, an end, I wanted to return to the beginning um, where we we began with you moving away from performance and obfuscation and we've we returned to that notion. But this idea of writing towards what feels authentic to you, where you not only feel like you aren't hiding, but where, where you've said the result is the I in your poems is quote-unquote really you. And I, I want to stay with this question of authenticity and language with you again. Um, in that spirit, you've said that you're nostalgic for the days when it was fun to be clever. And, and as you've said in this conversation, you don't have that urge anymore. And when you were on the Poet Salon podcast, you you talked about how you feel like play is a, a part of your life, but less and less part of your poetry. Um, what's fun about as as I'm sure is probably true for you as a podcaster too, is having so many different poets on the show with totally different poetics. Because I think of other conversations with poets um, with different poetics who don't put performativity and authenticity at odds, for instance, Um, or prose writers who feel like fiction gets to truths that nonfiction can't get to for them, uh, for instance or the various ways one could relate to naming. Naming is violence. Naming is maiming. Naming as a scrim over the world that prevents communion, all of which I think you engage with as part of it. But on the other side of the ledger, Audre Lorde saying, poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. Mm. Or, or even thinking back to Oswald and Keening or Forrest Gander, who who talks of an anthropologist who told him that every human culture studied has three things, some sort of laws about incest, some sort of ritual regarding how we treat the dead, and poetry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that poetry was often associated with shamanism and healing as well as visionary experience. Because I think of shamanism when I think of this notion of the I in a poem really being you – Um, It makes me wonder if there's a way we can prepare ourselves to speak where what we did say would be speaking either a true self or speaking from the earth through oneself, where a word could be for us in the right circumstances or maybe with the right preparation, the way a leaf or a piece of fruit would be for a, a tree, something that we produced. And then somehow it like was a, a portal of authenticity or connection. Mm. Um, but really I bring this all up because I'm curious about you as a gatekeeper and a cur- curator via the podcast because probably you and, and Padraig Otuma are the most high profile and far reaching curators in the audio format in, in the Anglophone world. And, and I know for sure, you curate poets based on a wide range of, of backgrounds looking toward representation and diverse representation. But I was curious about, do you do this with poetics? Is it simply that you pick poems that you love or will you pick clever poems or poems that mystify and obscure and perform?
2: Yeah. What a wonderful question. Yeah, I do. Um, I have been accused by all of my poet friends as being the person that likes all kinds of poetry. (laughs) And in some ways I think that they kind of, they laugh at me because they're like, how is it that you, I mean, I will find, I can defend any poem. I really think I can, unless it does like outright harm. Um, And so I feel like I, when I read for the slowdown, I'm reading just sort of far and wide and, just something that hits me. And sometimes I have no idea what the poem is about. Like, I really, am like, I don't know what this poem is doing, but I like it. And so I'll have to read it 20 times to figure out which, how I'm going to even introduce it. Um, but I want to leave space for those poems. I want to make sure that they're included because, you know, my poetics as an artist are different than my poetics as a reader. Um, you know, I, I'm someone who is really receptive to, to being read to. And like, you just read me a poem and I'm like, yep, I love that. You know, I'm just, I am that person. Yeah. I think I'm, um, <laughs> you know, I have friends who are like distinctly the opposite mm. uh, and could pick apart anything. And I'm on the other side going, well, but don't you see, this is really wonderful. Oh, this is interesting. And mm. so for me, I it's really about finding the pleasure right? And um, I don't have to work so much as in terms, of, at least for me, I don't feel like I need to work at really finding diverse backgrounds because I think if you're just reading a lot and you're reading the work that delights you, that just comes, you know? I mean, it's, we're lucky that that is the case now. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's, it's really just about finding the work that challenges me sometimes, that delights me, um, or sometimes that I find um, really is very different than my sort of own personal style when I write. And sometimes that's refreshing, right? Like, Oh, this is not something I would do. And I would love to just talk about it and read it and, 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 and feel what that is to give life to a poem that um, is maybe distinctly at odds from my own poetic impulse.
0: Well, I'd love to end with the poem lover, but before we do, I know that when, you sold the herding kind to milkweed. It was part of a three book deal. And I was curious if you could just talk about what we can expect next from you. Um, Yeah. And then we can go out with, uh, with lover.
2: Thank you. Yeah. The next thing will be um, an anthology I'm working on called beast and it's all animal poems and I'm putting it together now. Um, And I'm really trying to work on what it is to, Poems that are really about the animal and it's kind of hard, right? Because we often are um, turning into everything becoming about anthropomorphizing or about the self. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as to what it is to, you know, make sure to find these poems that really celebrate and honor the animal. Um, and then the next thing after that will be um, a new and selected which um, is kind of terrifying. So a, but uh, I have some time. I have some time for that.
0: It's definitely a landmark.
2: Yeah, yeah. I know. But landmarks, it, even even the word landmark sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make poems, you yeah. know. But yeah. Um, no, I'm excited about that too. Um But it's an it's an intense experience to think about somehow representing your own legacy in work.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine. I can try. Yeah, (laughs) Could we hear the the poem? Yes,
2: absolutely Lover Easy light storms in through the window Soft edges of the world smudged by mist A squirrel's nest rigged high in the maple I've got a bone to pick with whomever is in charge All year I've said, you know what's funny? And then nothing, nothing is funny which makes me laugh in an oblivion-is-coming sort of way. A friend writes the word lover in a note, and I'm strangely excited for the word lover to come back. Come back, lover. Come back to the five and dime. I could squeal with the idea of blissful release. Oh, lover. What a word. What a world. This grey waiting. In me, a need to nestle deep into the safe-keeping of sky. I'm too used to nostalgia now, a sweet escape of age, centuries of pleasure before us and after us, still, right now, a softness like the worn fabric of a nightshirt. And what I do not say is, I trust the world to come back, return like a word long forgotten and maligned for all its gross tenderness, a joke told in a sunbeam, the world Walking in, ready to be ravaged, open for business.
0: Thank you, Ada, for spending this time with me today.
2: Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.
0: We're talking today to the poet Ada Limon, the author of The Hurting Kind. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Neyman. You can find more of Ada Limon's work at adalimon.net and at slowdownshow.org. For the bonus Audio Archive, Ada contributes a reading of several poems by Alejandra Pizanique, which joins contributions by everyone from Lely Long Soldier to Padra Gotuma to Jory Graham. If you enjoyed today's conversation, help ensure the future of conversations just like this by joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can check out a wide variety of potential benefits, including the bonus audio of doing so. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Oge in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Laubrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash barbara browning.